Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend and everybody watching online and our live sites of the Montrose building. Thanks for joining us as well. I, I love baptisms. It's my favorite thing that we do here at Grace. And, and I love uh, how God changes people's lives. And I love when, uh, when we yield to him, right? When we kind of make that, that's what that is, is a public statement saying, I'm, I'm all in and I want to give my life and yield my life to Christ. It's a powerful, uh, powerful thing that we get to be a part of when we see that. Uh, we've been talking about that in, in this new series that we've been working on, uh, The Beginner's Guide to Hating Your Life. And we've been talking about what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? And, uh, and what does Jesus say? We've been looking at his words, his teaching. What does he say and how he defines it? Uh, we said, you know, if you put that question out there, kind of on the internet, so to say, did a survey monkey and said, what's it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, for most people, they would answer probably in uh, uh, one of a few categories. A lot of folks would identify that as a team. Like, are you a Christian or a Christ follower? We would say, yeah. I'm on that team. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Hindu. I'm not Muslim. I'm a Christian. That's, that would be a big answer. <clears throat> Another big answer would be tradition, right? Are you a Christian? And we say, well, yeah, I'm, I celebrate Christmas and Easter, not, not Hanukkah kind of a thing. Like that's, a, that's our family habits and traditions. And then the third big one with that is usually behavioral stuff. Like, are you a Christ follower? And it's some version of, yeah, I, I quit doing these things, smoke and drink and chew and date girls to do, cheering for Michigan, stuff God despises. Uh, and I started doing these things. I started going to church, read my Bible, you know, quit cussing, that kind of stuff. And, and so I changed my behaviors. And we've said, that's all good, right? That's all good. And parts of that are actually deep. It, it kind of depends on what you mean by it. But the question we're asking is, that, is that what Jesus means? Uh, when he calls us and says, come and be my disciples, come and follow me, be a Christian, one that's like Christ, is that what he has in mind? And so we've been looking at Luke chapter 14 and kind of digging at that, and we've looked at these words quite a bit. These are Jesus' words, all these are his words. He says this, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus is bringing a lot of clarity here. He's actually not being harsh or even exclusive. He's being definitive here. And he's saying this is what it means to be my disciple. If you don't hate father, mother, sister, brother, even your own life, he's obviously not telling us to hate people. That would be contradictory to who he is. He's talking about that in a comparative way. What he's saying is, he's like, normally these people run your life, right? Normally it's my culture, my background, my parents, my family culture, and then myself. Normally that's the first position that I have in my life. It's the first position of affection, the first position of authority, the first position of governance. Comparatively, if you don't take those people and yourself out of that position and plug me in, if I'm not first in authority, first in affection, first in governance, then you cannot be my disciple because that's what it means to be my disciple. 
So if I wasn't there, then you didn't actually sign up to follow me, right? And then pick up your cross and follow me. There's ramifications to taking myself and those other factors out of that first position. <clears throat> if I won't pick up my cross, if I won't deal with those ramifications and those changes, then you cannot be my disciples because my disciples counted the cost. They decided ahead of time to do that and they're embracing those things. And then everything, if there's parts of my life that I'm withholding, parts of my identity, parts of my life plan, parts of my wealth, you know, whatever, whatever you want to put in there. If there's parts of my life that I'm withholding and saying, God, you can have these things, but not this stuff, then you cannot be my disciple because my disciples don't do that. That's what it means to be my disciple. And I told you uh, about my friend that joined the army. He's in boot camp right now. And he counted the cost. He decided ahead of time that he wanted to do this. He investigated it. He, he thought it through. And then he enlisted. So because he counted the cost and enlisted, he's not surprised that he is in this path of life, right? Because you, you can't put on, a, put on a uniform and show up at parades and call yourself being a part of the military. That's not what it means. You can't do that and be my disciple. It's just not what it means. It means this. And so he decided to enlist. And so now that is the affection, the authority, the governance of his life. And so we've been talking about that, and we just said what, what our general temptation is, is to live a me-first life. The, the person I love and trust and believe the most is me, right? So that tends to be a me-first life, and the temptation is to add God to that. God, make my life be what I want it to be. Like somehow empower that and juice that up for me. And Jesus would say, no, it's a, it's a Christ-first life. That's the life of a disciple. And that affects our religious elitism or our self-righteousness. It affects our humility. It affects our affection, our authority, and the governances of our life. So we've been talking about that. It's all online. It's on the app. It's on the podcast. It's probably worth a listen if, you, if you've missed some of these conversations. Uh, if you are a Christ follower, it'll challenge you and sharpen you. If you're thinking about it, it will help you consider the cost. Like you should know what you're getting yourself into. And it's wonderful. I highly recommend it. But Jesus would say, yeah, just think about it ahead of time and decide because once you enlist, this is the life that, that I'm calling you to. So all that's out there and take a look at it and, and, and uh, encourage you to, okay? So as we've been kind of walking this through, we've talked a lot about that affection that Christ is the first, the definer of my affection. And then we've talked about that authority, religious elitism and humility and all those kind of things. And this weekend, I, I want I us to think through this idea of governance. Governance. What are the rules that run my life? And as a disciple, how do I interact with the rules of culture and society and like family systems and even myself? And then how do I make decisions to be governed by Christ? Okay, so if you got your Bibles, grab them, and we're going to go back to Luke 14. So we've just been kind of hanging out here in Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you want to use a, a, a paper Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 848 in those Bibles. And then this is on the app if you just want to use the app as well. 
So Luke 14, let me just set it up for us. Jesus has been at this dinner. We're still, if, you, if you've been hanging out these last few weeks, we're at the same dinner. We've just been piecing it out, right? So we're at this dinner. Uh, this din- dinner is hosted by the spiritual elite of the ancient world, and they're called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So these are the hoity-toities. They're the, bo- the popes and the, the bishops uh, of, the, of the ancient world. And so that's where they're at. These dinners have a protocol that's really important because it's a lot of what Jesus is speaking into. And the protocol is that there's a host. The host is the person who has the power and the position and is in a place of, of, of privilege and wealth. And they are the ones able to invite to the dinner. So in the ancient world, if you were having friends over, you didn't stop at Drug Mart on the way home and, you know, get a DiGiorno pizza. You, you had to have wealth to have a banquet like this. And so the host is this Pharisee, right? He's a, a religious elite person, and he would have the, the position, the privilege, the power, and the wealth to host the, the dinner. At these dinners, there was certainly a seating chart, okay? So the guest of honor would sit closest to the host, and then the people closest to the host and the guest of honor, it went in order of importance as you went out. So we've been using the example like the Golden Globe Awards, like it's Tom Hanks, Brad Pitt up front, and back there is like Billy Ray Cyrus with an achy, breaky heart, like he's over there somewhere, right? And so that's the way that it's set. Think of a political setting or a a setting like that, and that's what's going on here. So Jesus would have been kind of up front. He would have been sitting close to the host. He's already interacted with the rest of the people at the dinner, and that's the, the conversations you can catch up with if you want. So now dinner is being served, and I want you to kind of in your mind's eye imagine Jesus leaning over to the host and saying what we're going to look at today, okay? So this is what the Bible says, verse 12, chapter 14 of Luke. Then Jesus said to the host, he just leans over to him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, then he says this, he says, if you do, they will invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus leans over, he says to the host, he says, listen, man, uh, when, you, when you throw one of these parties, you, the host, who are in the position of power, privilege, wealth, when you're in that position, you, the host, when you invite, when you have your dinner, don't simply invite people who can do something for you. Invite people who can do nothing for you. So there's two groups of people that Jesus is talking about. We're going to call them the popular kids and the invisible kids, all right? So there's the popular people and there's the invisible people. And Jesus looks at the host and says, when you throw a dinner, don't just invite the popular people to that dinner because if you scratch their back, what they'll do is they'll scratch yours. And that's the extent of the exchange, right? That's all that will happen out of that. When you invite people into your life, and the only people you invite into your life are the people that can do something for you, 
then what they do for you is the repayment that you will get. That's all that's going to happen with it, okay? And so in this ancient world, Jesus is, is addressing this, and these folks, this is the host now, he's the religious guy, the elite guy, he would struggle with this idea the same way that we do, that in our lives, our temptation is always to surround ourselves with people who can do something for us, ready? And those are the rules or the governance of our culture. We all think like this. We're, we're all captivated by this. This is our instinct that I'm going to invite people into my life who do something for me. And certainly if it's a big deal, a banquet kind of a thing, I'm going to network, I'm going to make sure my boss is there, I'm going to get my friends there that make me happy, I'm going to get the people there that are encouraging to me, I'm going to tie those folks in, and that's, if I'm going to use my position of power, privilege, wealth, then I'm going to use it to benefit me in those ways, right? Now, for us in North America, what this is, this is all just a version of high school. This is the way high school works, right? So the governance of high school is the governance that we live in. By the way, if you're in high school, I just want you to know something. High school is a survival sport. That's all that it is. It's a survival sport. All those pretty girls and cool kids, they'll all be fat and bald before too long. It's the way that it goes. Even the women. Like, it's just the way that it rolls, right? So high school is a survival sport, but if you're in high school and all of us who went to high school, what you know and what we know is that high school has a governance to it. There's rules, and you instinctually know those rules in high school. You know that you go in there and you navigate through those rules. There's social hierarchies, and it depends a little bit on your school what those hierarchies are. Sometimes it's the, the really athletic kids, and they're just the coolest kids. Sometimes it's the artistic kids, like if you go over to Firestone, like it's the kid, that kid that's best at performance. Sometimes it's the smartest kid, and then there's always that kid that's all of those things that we all hate, right? And so that's just high school. That's just the way that that works. But there's a governance, and you know that governance, and what happens is you instinctually start to know how to navigate that governance. You care a lot about who you eat lunch with, and you care a lot about what party you're invited to, and you care a lot about the party you're not invited to, and you care a lot about what that person thinks of you, and we learn that governance. Now, what happens is that governance flows into our culture and we all live with it because we all would struggle with those same insecurities. So now it's about whether the boss invited me to the meeting or not. Now it's how do I navigate the conference and get networked correctly. Now it's about how the other moms on the team view me when we're cheering for our kids. Now it's about the neighborhood and what people think in my place in the neighborhood or the country club or just whatever it is. There's governances, there's rules that we would navigate society through, right? And they're deeply ingrained in us. We would have the same insecurities and the same longings all through life. If you doubt me on this, then just go to your kid's high school and walk in the cafeteria and see how you feel. I go to my kid's high school, I'm 48 years old, I walk in, I'm like, oh man, who do I sit with? 
I wonder if they think my outfit's cooler. <laughs> right? You feel the exact same way. Why? Because we know those rules. And when you go to a conference of whatever your, plate, your marketplace is, you feel the same, oh man, what are the cool kids? Oh, there's that guy. There's that guy. I got to get that guy to see me. See? And Jesus is leaning over to the host here at the banquet, and he's acknowledging that. He's like, yeah, there's rules. There's governance. It's the way that the world works. It's the way that it, it functions. And in the, the context of discipleship, which is the Luke 14 context, remember, it's all, he's in the same place through all these conversations. We're just parsing them out. Jesus lays out some clarity and some choices. So he says to the host, if all you invite into your life are the people who benefit you, the people who advance you, the people who do what you want, the popular kids, then your reward is that. I put it this way in my notes. When your life goal is popularity, your life reward is popularity. And it's the only gain you'll ever experience. So Jesus looks at the host. He says, yeah, if you want to be... You want to be one of the popular kids, you can be one of the popular kids, and that's what you'll get. You'll get being one of the popular kids. You, you, you want to be the guy at work, you can be the guy at work, and, and that's what you'll get. You'll be the guy at work. And if you want, you want to have the nicest lawn with the, with the nicest lawn tractor, if you want to be the Jeff Bogue of your neighborhood, you can, you can do that, and that's what you'll get. You'll, you'll, get the, you'll get a neighbor going, man, your grass looks great. That's what you'll get, right? So he, he's, not, he's not saying scorn the popular crowd or hate your brother saying, here, you don't have anything. He's not saying that. He's saying if this drives you, this is the reward. He's not even saying pull out of culture. He's just saying just see it for what it is, Right? You excel at work, that's great, and the minute you don't, you're done. And they'll walk right past you. That guy that was your great friend and your great ally won't be the minute that you can't perform for them. That's the rules. It's what governs us, and it's what governs our culture, and it's what governs kind of the world that we live in, and it's the same rules that govern the ancient world because it's, the, it's kind of like the nature of humanity to be interacting with people that way. And what Jesus says is, my disciples don't play by those rules. You cannot be my disciple and have that be your governance because my disciples decide to be governed by something different. Well, if I don't play by those rules, I might not be one of the popular kids. Right, you cannot be my disciple and refuse to pick up your cross. There's ramifications of not playing by the rules, but my disciples live with those ramifications. Well, but, but you know, at church, I'm this way and at home, I'm this way, but business is business. Business is business. Well, yeah, right, you cannot be my disciple if you don't bring everything to the table. That's what my disciples do. So my disciples would look at that social construct, and they would, they would think about it differently, 
and they would make another set of decisions. What other set of decisions could I make? Well, to the host of the banquet, Jesus says, you could do this, but when you give a banquet, you can invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Instead of going for the popular kids, you could invite the invisible kids, the people that everybody overlooks and nobody really values, and here's the key, and they really can't do much for you. Like you can scratch their back, but they actually can't scratch yours. They can't repay you. But you will be repaid and you will be blessed by me, by Christ. Now, why is that a big deal to God? Why would he go there, right? Because this is different than like, hey, be nice to people that nobody else is nice to. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about governance, social contracts, where he's looking and saying, listen, this is the way it works, but my disciples don't work that way. They work this way. And if you wanted to act like, talk like, think like, love like, be motivated like me, you would be more over here. You would make a different decision and that decision would reflect my heart. Because Jesus is nice to people? No. When we make the decision not to simply surround ourselves with people who benefit us, but instead invite people into our life who can't benefit us, ready? We're making the same decision Christ made when he stepped out of heaven and came to earth. What's the upside for Jesus coming here? See, he, he sits in the ultimate place of power, the ultimate position, the ultimate privilege, the ultimate wealth. He's got it all. And we can't do anything that scratches his back. We don't have anything. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rag. We have nothing to offer God. God offers us everything. So what's the upside for him? Step out of heaven, be born of a virgin in a cave, nursing next to the cow, living life in the human condition, only to be beaten, mocked, crucified, die, raise again from the dead, proving he's God, to have most of the world not appreciate it. What's his upside? Well, his upside is that he loves us. That he would pick up his cross. He would, quote unquote, hate his life. He would bring everything motivated by love. And as his follower, who wants to act like, talk like, think like, love like, be motivated like him... I explain to other people what Christ did, ready, for me. When I invite people into my life 
who cannot do anything for me. And Jesus would look and say, you know, if you want to be popular, be popular, and popularity is what you get, but if you want to reflect my heart and be blessed, then you love people who cannot repay you. I will, though. You will make me make sense. I see it. I value it. You're loving the way that I love, and I will repay you. If you make the decision that a disciple would make. Now that decision's hard, isn't it? That's a hard decision. Because it, just because I'm a disciple doesn't mean that I'm not tempted or that I'm not sinless. So we grow up in a social construct. We grow up in an environment and in a culture where all this makes sense. You walk into high school and you just start knowing how to navigate it. You get a new job, you start figuring out how to navigate. It's just the way that the world works. And so we're always drawn to that, right? We're always drawn to want to sit in the front row of the banquet and to throw the elbows to get there. And we love it. I love it. You love it. I, I love it when I go someplace and they introduce me. I think that's the best. Because when they introduce me, especially if it's someplace that's academic, they use all of my titles. It's great. And if I get to wear my Hogwarts robe too, that's even better. And so they're like, here, our speaker today is the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey A. Bogue. And I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, I love that. I love the fact that I thought of an illustration where I had to tell you all of my titles. I love that, right? Because I love to be known and I love to be seen and I love the front row. Everybody does. Everybody does. So the disciple is always going to be drawn to that. It's our humanity, what the Bible calls our sin nature. But when the disciple recognizes that, when they recognize that there's a temptation to have a different affection than Christ, a different authority than Christ, and a different governance than Christ, the disciple is one who's going to take the thought captive, step back, and make a different decision. They're going to humble themselves like Christ did. Now, how do you do that? We've been looking a little bit at Colossians chapter 3 as well. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul gives us, starts to give us the how-to with this, right? So he says this. He says, since then you have been chosen, since you have been raised with Christ. So this is for those of us who are disciples. If you say, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower, I'm a Christian, this is to you. By the way, if you say, I'm not that yet, then you're completely off the hook for what I'm about ready to say. But for those of us who enlisted, this is what Paul says, since you have been raised with Christ, this is what you do. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So a disciple, even though we're followers of Christ, we're going to be drawn to this governance, to these rules, because we know them and we instinctually play within them. We understand that this is the way that the culture works for us. We're drawn there. But when I'm drawn there, God uses this word set. I'm going to capture that, and I'm going to say, wait a minute. 
instinctually, my heart is set here. I love being introduced. I love being known. I love the front row. I have affection for it. As a disciple, I'm going to recognize what's happening. I'm going to remove that, and I'm going to set those affections here. I'm going to love the reward of Christ. I'm going to love making Jesus famous instead of Jeff. I'm going to love the things that God loves. Same thing, my mind. My mind, I'm going to walk into high school and my version of high school, and I'm going to mentally start navigating that. Who do I set with? And then you become a parent. Who do I set with in the games? Who do I, how do I get my kids on the good side of the coach? What do we have to do to navigate so my boss sees me? How do I know? And we're thinking of this all the time. My mind is going to be captured by this. A disciple is going to recognize that, right? I'm going to recognize that I'm starting to be governed by these rules and I'm going to walk over here, and I'm going to set my mind on the things above. How do I take my power, my privilege, my position, and my wealth and glorify God with it? Remember, this conversation is to the host. The host wants all the right people at his banquet. And Jesus says, or you could have all the wrong people at your banquet. You have the popular kids, or you can have the invisible kids, and you can make a different set of decisions that will have a different outcome because there's a different motivation, because you're choosing to walk away from that governance. And the heart and the mind of Jesus, what he did, what he showed us, what he would long for, is now the thing that's going to govern the disciple's life. Right? Now, what do I do in response then? Okay, I got it. I'm drawn into it. I recognize it. I take my What do I do with the invisible people? How do I interact with them? Am I just nice to them? Do I just feel bad about them? Do I just not participate when they're getting picked on? What do I do? Jesus uses a very curious word. He says this. He says, but when you give a banquet, invite. When you give a banquet, invite. I find that a very fascinating term. He doesn't say, when you give a banquet, allow. When you give a banquet, uh, be considerate of, because you know the poor people always show up. He says, when you give a banquet, invite. The word invite is a very fascinating word because inviting is a very deliberate action, isn't it? When we're having a wedding and we're making the invitation list, we're ruling people in and we're ruling people out. We're deciding how we're going to invite the people and who they are because we're inviting them to our banquet. When you have a graduation party, you're ruling people in and you're ruling people out. You're inviting. You're making a very willful decision. And Jesus is looking at the host and he's saying, listen, 
You have the ability to host. I have blessed you to be in a position. You have the power of invitation. You have the position of invitation. You have the privilege of invitation. You have the wealth of invitation. So make a decision to invite people into your life. People who cannot benefit you, they cannot repay you. People who cannot advance you. People who, who, who cannot maybe even make you happy or allow you to have fun. But you invite them into your life. Ready? Why? Why? Because you got to be nice to people like that. Nope. Jesus was nice to people? Nope. Why do we invite those people into our life? Is it just to be nice? This is what Jesus knows. Unless I invite the invisible people into my life and pick up the cross of loving them and caring for them and, and navigating my relationship with them, unless I do that, ready? I will never understand what Christ does for me. And I will begin to think that I'm self-righteous. I'll start to think that God needs me. I'll start to think that when I use my privilege, that I'm doing God a You know, I, I let people know at work I'm a Christian. I have a, a thing that hangs on my wall. I'll start to use my, well, you know, I, I, I gave the church some money. Good chunk of money. Right. I, I'll start to think that I am the one blessing God. Because I think that I'm interacting with God the way that I'm interacting with the popular people in my life. Scratching your back, God. How about the promotion? Scratching your back, God. How about the follicles, God? Little hair? That's how I start to think. When I invite the invisible into my life, not only do I love them and care for them and meet their needs, but it also positions me correctly as the host. Oh, you know what? It's taxing for God to have me in his life. You know what? It's not always easy to love me. You know what? I have some, I have some needs that I'm dependent on God to meet. You know what, God who is in the position of power, privilege, and wealth, I see clearer now his patience, his mercy, his compassion, and his grace. This invisible person taught me that. And Jesus would look in this context, Luke 14, of what discipleship is and say, my people, they do that. They do that. They see this, they live in the world, they, they don't all withdraw and live in a commune. This is the way the world works. They're just not governed by it. 
they're governed by this. And my governance is different. And my governance plays out. And my governance has a different invitation list. And my disciples would do that. Somebody that I um, have a ton of respect for and I'm fascinated by, I, I read a lot about his life and watch a lot of documentaries about him and stuff like that, is, uh, is Martin Luther King. And, you know, this last Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and so he's been on my mind. And I, if you ever just want to do, like, a fascinating study of an amazing person, his life is a fascinating life. And part of why I respect Martin Luther King so much is because of how he used his position to cause a whole culture to see invisible people. Now, he died, when he was assassinated, he was 39 years old. And he was at the, he was at the peak of his, of his place. He was a, the host of a banquet. He had power, he had privilege, he had position, and he had access to wealth. So right before he died, you know, he would have been literally in the president's office. He would have done his I Have a Dream speech Tens of hundreds of thousands of people there in Washington. He's at the, the peak of his influence. And part of why I respect him so much is he did not take that position and benefit himself with it. You know, you have some people, they'll take up causes and they'll take them up from afar. They'll, they'll bloviate about how terrible something is, and then they're flying their private jet somewhere, or how awful something is, but they never leave their sphere of, of comfort. They just, they just kind of passively say, yeah, some, somebody should care for those people over there. It's really bad what's happening to them. Do you know why Martin Luther King was assassinated and, and why he was in Memphis? He was assassinated in Memphis. you know why he was down there? you remember? He was in Memphis marching with and raising the awareness of the abuses of trash collectors. So a couple months before, the working conditions, they call them the sanitation workers, the working conditions with the sanitation workers were so terrible that equipment had been malfunctioning and it killed several of them, two of them. And the, the workers were so frustrated they went on strike he said, it's, it, we can't even do our jobs, it's unsafe, these things are breaking and we're losing our lives. Martin Luther King went to Memphis to raise the awareness of the plight of the trash collector. Who sees a trash collector? These are the invisible people. And he didn't raise their cause from afar. He wasn't in Washington giving a speech he, he wasn't, you know, over here doing a fundraiser saying, oh, by the way, the trash collector. He wasn't using these invisible people. He joined them. And when he was assassinated, he was in Memphis bringing attention, focus, dignity, value, worth to trash collectors. And when we see that play out in his life, he was not a perfect person by a long shot, but he was right. And when we see that play out, we honor him. 
This is a man. We have a federal holiday. We have statues. We honor him. Never was in the military. Never fought a battle. Never had a political office. Never. Why do we honor him? Because he took his place as the host of the banquet. And when he wrote his invitation list, he invited the invisible and he gave his life for them. And we look at him and and we say, despite his ups and downs or whatever you think, he was legit. His exalting of others gives affirmation to his message and credibility to his message. And his message was undeniably right. And a whole culture was convicted by it. Ready? Because he wasn't governed by the culture. Jesus would look at his disciples and he'd say, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. They, they stand over here, they're different. And when they, it's not that they're never in the Oval Office, that they're, they're never around powerful people. They're just not governed by it. When the trash collector needs them, that person goes on their invitation list. These people over here who don't have access to the gospel, who who don't have access to to power, who don't have access to wealth, who don't have access to privilege, who are invisible, nobody thinks about them. Nobody cares about them. People don't even know they exist. Jesus would look and say, when my disciples are in the position of being the host, and all of us are on one degree or another, They don't use that position to simply advance themselves. That's the governance of the world. When my disciples are in the position of hosting the banquet, making up the invitation list, they see the invisible. Ready? They recognize that they were invisible and I saw them. And they love like and act like and think like and are motivated like I was when I came to their rescue, when I helped them, when I put them on my invitation list and welcomed them into my bank. Guys, this is discipleship at its finest. What an incredible opportunity to give validity to the message of Christ. What an amazing platform to give validity to the authenticity of Christ. And Jesus would say, That's, you cannot be my disciple and just be shooting for the front row all the time. That's not what what my disciple would do. 
You cannot be my disciple and jump in with all the other kids picking on the kid at lunch. That's not even what my disciple would do. You, you're going to have to go over there and love that kid and protect him and stick up for them. Pick up your cross. You cannot be my disciple and here's my life, but this is business. This is the neighborhood. These are my friends. We die to ourselves. We see the people Jesus sees, and we welcome them. We welcome them. All right. I wanted to try to give you some handles to grab hold on. So here's, here's what I was thinking of. Here's the question. The question is, who are the invisible people in your life? And, and here's the premise. There are invisible people in the world that we need to love, the, the kids dying of famine and places that need the gospel. We need to send missionaries to start churches, and that's important. And here's my fear a little bit. My fear is if we say, well, those are the invisible people, the problem is we can kind of throw money at that and alleviate our conscience, and, and it's important, and that's why we do Feed My Starving Children and all that kind of stuff. It's super-duper important. I don't think that's what Jesus is challenging the host with. I think that's a different part of scripture where, the, where Paul would talk about equality. You ate today, let's help those kids eat today, right? So when I say who are the invisible people, this is what I mean. I believe that most of the invisible people in our life are at an arm's length. I think we work with them. I think we go to school with them. I, I think they come to church. I think they're at the gym. I think they're in our family room. When worldly governance takes over, people become invisible. Ready? Teenagers, your family can become invisible to you because you're so captured by your friends. So who are the invisible people in your life? Our employees can become invisible to us because we're captured by profit. And bottom line, see? So who are the invisible? My spouse can become invisible to me because I'm captured by resentment and bitterness. So not out there somewhere. Who are the invisible people in your life? Ready? And then what is the invitation? This conversation Jesus is having is important and that word invitation is important because here's the temptation. The temptation is to feel bad for invisible people. I feel bad, man. I feel bad for those, those people in the inner city. I feel bad for them. The inner city is five miles that way. I feel bad. That kid at school gets picked on. And I feel bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not participate. And Jesus is looking and saying, that's not invitation. That's Maybe compassion, it's mostly emotion. It's not invitation. Invitation is a very deliberate act. Who do I welcome? Who do I allow to draw near? And there's wisdom and there's discernment and there's all of that. But this isn't feelings or guilt. 
Grace Church doesn't do guilt anyways. So that, that, neither does Jesus. So that's not what this is. It, it, it's, it's action. So the invisible person is, is probably somebody that you see all the time. And then the invitation is not emotion toward that person. It's action. It's a welcoming into our life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's because that's what he did, right? It's what he does personally for you and I. So who's the invisible person? And what's the invitation? And I think as we act on that, that's what disciples, Bullship looks like. It looks like those choices in that life direction and that governance, me setting my heart and mind on that. Okay? All right, the band's going to come out, give us a minute to think. I encourage you to be still. We stink at being still as a culture and frankly as a church. We're terrible at it. So take a minute and think and pray, and rest, right? And the band will lead us in some worship, but let's, let's be with God a little bit and let him press these things in, okay? Jesus, would you help us in this? Me too. Me first. I'm first in line. God, I want to be known. I want to be known. I want to be rewarded. I want to be... So God, as we, as we start to recognize that, would you help us to set our mind and our heart differently. God, help us to see the invisible. Bring to mind right now, through your Holy Spirit, the invisible people. And then God, right now, through your Holy Spirit, help us start to form the invitation. And let us not just learn your word, but do it and live it. And draw us in those ways. So God, give us wisdom, give us strength, convict us, challenge us, help us. And uh, God, let us embrace and own this high calling of being your disciple.